I don't know how you could be a history teacher without teaching about race and racism. I think that the story of decolonization is a story of liberation. You know, we don't want to set up groups of people to always be the oppressed and the downtrodden. I shouldn't have to, as a black man, bleed for you to learn something. We have a lot of kids in the school who really want to have these discussions. Let's provide a way for that to happen. You want to challenge kids' thinking without turning them away from the material. I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition, the podcast that explores current events, history, and cultures of Africa with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. It's a common refrain that there's a danger in teaching a single story of Africa. A single story denies complexity and obscures the vitality of social realities across this expansive and bright continent. We can also too easily get caught up in lamenting the faults of dominant stories. As teachers, we know that it's problematic to exoticize Africans, to reinforce tropes of poverty and famine. Yet escaping this framework requires different stories and alternative ways of knowing. Ones that focus on agency, resistance, and resilience. Teaching the long and complex history of decolonization is one way to move beyond merely problematizing certain narratives. It's a way to introduce our students to stories that demonstrate power, struggle, yearning, and even innovation. In this episode, we're going to focus on race, resistance, and decolonization because here we find provocative accounts of people who confronted oppression, reclaimed identity, and challenge cultures of subjugation. My name is Michael Roth. I teach in the School of Medicine and the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University. In order to enter into this conversation, we first need to understand what exactly colonialism was and what ideas were at the heart of Europe's scramble to carve up the continent. Well, the question of European colonization, I think it depends on how you periodize it and where you believe it begins. Oftentimes when people think about colonialism, they think about conquest of territories in Africa through sort of military rule and extraction of resources in a very explicit and deliberate way. On the other hand, one way to think about colonization is stretching back over hundreds of years as a kind of pan-European project to take over the rest of the world. There was kind of a notion that Europe would now and henceforth be white and Christian. Europe was not strictly white in a comprehensive sense. You know, there are all kinds of people and people of all kinds of faiths living in Europe, but there'd be kind of a deliberate geopolitical pan-European project to think of Europe as white and dominant over the rest of the world. With the more familiar notion of colonialism, it sort of gets underway in the decades following is the end of legalized slavery in the world. There became this notion that slavery would be replaced by legitimate commerce and this sense that what much of the world was practicing by way of economic and political systems was inhumane and illegitimate and that it was now the task of European nations 
to establish formal economic and political legitimacy over these territories and bring them into this unified global system. By 1905, just 20 years after European nations met in Berlin to partition Africa without the input of any African delegations, nearly the entire continent was under some form of external political control. So how did European governments justify this relationship of exploitation and subjugation? There would be these notions that somehow Africans are practicing these barbaric forms of despotic rule and that it was the moral obligation of Europeans to transform those societies. And the explicit way to transform them was to invade them and seize control of those lands and those people and those territories. I also would want to point out that colonialism looked differently in different parts of the world, in different parts of the African continent. I I think that this idea of colonialism sometimes being subtle and being about kind of infiltration in a surreptitious way is important because often what we see is either the sort of invasion standing in for colonialism or the lack of invasions appearing like there was no such thing as colonialism. We can't separate European colonialism from notions of race and racism. But what I think is interesting about Africa in relation to Europe, it was not, as some people often assume, the case that when Europeans first encountered Africa, that they assumed Africans were inferior. I think that as certain kinds of commercial relations were institutionalized, and as the nature of slavery and then colonialism was steeped in forms of labor to which African people were subjugated, there was this association with subjugation and race. So that race became attached by like, to some extent perhaps the 16th century, but even the 17th century, became most closely tethered to physiognomy, what people look like. But increasingly there was a kind of effort to depict African people as beneath Europeans in order to justify institutionalizing inequality and depicting them as beneath Europeans. Ideas about racial superiority don't just exist in the social ether. They emerge from somewhere. These ideas are constructed and take root within society. So where do these ideas come from? I think there's a really interesting articulation between um, enlightenment principles, uh, scientific theories, and race and racial subjugation. One thing I think is very important about the enlightenment, enlightenment era is that we often think of it as the age of reason and this notion of truth. And some people have access to truth and reason and the faculty for enlightened judgment, others do not. I think the implications for Africa is sort of this assumption that through forensic inquiry, through looking at evidence, through a better understanding different groups of people, you can better understand what they're likely to do or what they're capable of, you know? So this kind of effort to pin people's characteristics, tendencies, traits, lifestyles, patterns to predictions and assumptions about who they are in the world. I think that's one of the legacies of enlightenment reasoning as well. You know, Egyptologists and craniometrists, physical anthropologists are sort of having these conversations about how to think about Egyptian skulls and insisting that they cannot be considered African, that they must be European. Hegel in the Introduction to Philosophy of History, the 19th century German philosopher, he says, Egypt is part of the Asiatic spirit in the world. It should not be part of Africa. He refers to Africa as the land of childhood and says the whole history of Africa could be summed up in one word, barbarism. So 
there became this explicit project though by like the you know 17th 18th centuries and onward to depict Africa as primitive, barbaric, and savage as a way to justify controlling land, resources, territory, as a way to insist on the European need for tutelage in Africa. And I think one of the legacies of colonial rule is this idea of tutelage. With this understanding in mind, let's now focus on decolonization. This term itself is heavy, yet somehow also nebulous. Is decolonization a historical period? Is it a philosophy? Can we better understand it as a process? Will decolonization ever actually be complete? I think part of what's at stake is whether the term decolonized, for instance, is, is really useful or if it's adequate. No matter what we think of it, we need to just be clear about how we're using it because we don't want to suggest that colonization, decolonization were these discrete moments and that after that, the work was done. The presumption of colonial rule is that Europeans have this moral authority, and what decolonization presents is a challenge to that entire approach. But decolonization suggests that that entire framework is bankrupt and illegitimate, and therefore African people ought to be autonomous um, in establishing standards for uh, achievement and shaping governance, right? Like deciding for themselves, deciding on their own terms, what it would look like to have a healthy society, to be empowered economically and politically. So then the question becomes, well, what's next? And I think to decolonize is to believe that African people are capable of shaping their own reality in an autonomous way. I think um, decolonization is innovative to the extent that people are willing to undertake and explore new possibilities. In a sense, what decolonization suggests is that there were meaningful social institutions before the onset of colonial rule and that African people are capable of building viable social institutions once colonial rule has been successfully alleviated, defeated, extracted, etc. Can decolonization be understood as anti-racist action? If colonization in many ways hinged on racist notions, how did the agency on display through decolonization attempt to reclaim, rebuild, and even renew identities. It is important to note that countries that have produced really outspoken critics of colonial rule have often also been really engaged in essentially rewriting their own stories. One of the most obvious ways to think about race and identity and decolonization is there are discourses, colonial discourses about blackness being a mark of inferiority and the anti-colonial discourses and efforts to decolonize, which are about celebrating blackness and Africanity. I do think that overall, there's an effort to celebrate African histories of African ritual practices, African aesthetics, African imagination. So I think that's, that's one response that's both tied to race, but also goes beyond to refer to culture uh, and sort of attributes of African societies. I think also we see the renaming of African countries and cities as a sign, I think, in more concrete terms, transforming African economic political relationships is another example of sort of an effort to fight against legacies of racism. But, and I think maybe perhaps what we can think about publishing, like the African novels and poetry and, and things like that as a key site of decolonizing work around legacies of colonial rule. You know, in Senegal, we have Usman Sembene, and then we have 
you know, to know each other in Nigeria, their efforts are critical to the way that people see African history and African politics and even how people contemplate possibilities for African countries. Decolonization in Africa is really interesting because it can look different ways in different places and shaping governance, right? Like deciding for themselves, deciding on their own terms what it would look like to have a healthy society, to be empowered economically and politically. Let's keep in mind the importance of noting the ways that agency and resistance are key to the independence movements that were part of African decolonization. We could spend hours tracing the historical contours of what transpired in Sudan or Ghana or Algeria or even Zimbabwe. The winds of change are complex, and each one of these cases deserves our attention. But let's zoom in and out, thinking about certain strategic patterns and experiences throughout this decades-long struggle across the African continent to decolonize. In different parts of Africa, you look around, you see either sort of these series of intense negotiations about who will now be in power as a new nation, or you see efforts to, for people to defend themselves against colonial violence by force. If we look at Senegal, for instance, we see something like in the midst of French colonial rule and the latter part of the 19th century, the emergence of Islamic Brotherhood, in particular that of Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, and this notion that through a kind of new notions of piety and spiritual discipline, he grew the ranks of his followers into thousands and hundreds of thousands and just essentially created an order that the, the sort of Maurice Islamic Brotherhood, the French, felt like they had to make concessions with because they could not stop its growth and influence. By the time independence was achieved, it becomes something like a negotiation, elaborate negotiation, and ultimately Leopold Senghor, who was a renowned scholar and poet, becomes the president of Senegal. Resistance takes many shapes, ranging from spiritual fortitude to cultural renewal. Yet the words of Franz Fanon in his seminal text, The Wretched of the Earth, are often invoked when people think about the way African peoples confronted colonialism. Fanon wrote, quote, national liberation, national reawakening, restoration of the nation to the people or commonwealth. Whatever the name used, whatever the latest expression, decolonization is always a violent event. So let's look at this facet of decolonization, violence. Let's look at it head on and think about the presence of violence in these campaigns for liberation. Sometimes people will talk about it as whether violence or nonviolence is more appropriate for decolonization, whether violence is excessive. But I think the emphasis on what's been called violence is overstated and misguided because we're not talking about violence, we're talking about people who are defending themselves against the most extreme forms of violence. When uprisings spring up, where people are determined to defend themselves against violent injustices, and those people themselves use force to do it, is because the scale and intensity of violence is so vast that they've been left with no other choice. We would be remiss not to think about and name some of the people who led decolonizing movements and who would later be at the helm of independent countries. Uh, a lot of people who were active in decolonization efforts even in efforts of armed resistance were like engineers or 
doctors of one kind or another. They held doctorates or they were lawyers or medical doctors. And he said, oh, that's interesting that someone, you know, who lead the armed struggle was a medical doctor or a lawyer or a PhD. But it makes sense because oftentimes early on, they were going to elite institutions very deliberately as a way of building up their credibility. And then also making sure they had a devastating critique of colonial rule in a parallel sense. Kwame Nkrumah, for instance, was an academic all-star and left Ghana, actually went to a uh, university in the United States on scholarship and excelled at every level and then came back to Ghana uh, and became influential in shaping sort of Gold Coast politics and ultimately becoming the first president of Ghana. Jomo Kenyatta, the first president of Kenya, was uh, an anthropologist by training and then came back and, and used, in part, his anthropological training to help clarify what was at stake for the people of Kenya in trying to shape their new political reality. Um, Leopold Senghor actually was, like I think, the first African person, perhaps the first Black person, admitted to the French Academy of Arts and Letters. Um, he was a renowned poet, and he also was the first president of Senegal. And so in many ways, I think their academic credentials were central to the way they were received by the audiences. Let's look at one more example of decolonization in Africa. Perhaps it's an example that will further complicate our understanding of Africa's histories. My favorite example, though, actually, of decolonization in Africa, the one I think is most important and most revealing, is a very paradoxical context, um, and it has to do with Ethiopian colonial rule in Eritrea. So what's interesting about this case is obviously Ethiopia is known as the only African country that was never colonized, and yet it ended up colonizing its neighbor. And, you know, Eritrea had been colonized several times, been colonized by Ottoman Turks and by Italians. And initially, Ethiopia was supposed to have a kind of federated relationship with Eritrea where it allowed Eritrea to be autonomous. So there's supposed to be a kind of federation. Quickly after it was formally constituted, Ethiopia kind of essentially dissolved the federation and just turned Eritrea into a colony. And as in other cases of Africa, colonization, there was extreme forms of violence and lynching and things like that. And so Eritreans banded together and fought for their independence. But it took 30 years. Benyam, where you believe it started, more than 30 years of fighting for independence and only achieved independence uh, in 1991. But I think the idea of even an African country fighting to decolonize from another African country is really a revealing example, but also it obeys the same kind of dynamics we see in other contexts where people are driven to use arms to defend themselves when they're facing forms of extreme violence, but also that you know there's a kind of determined effort to eradicate and extract themselves from colonial rule. So when we're thinking about this particular facet of Africa's history, should we see independence as the apex of decolonization? Does national sovereignty indicate the success of decolonization? To this day, you know, I think when we see African countries still in the grips of control by European countries or by international developing uh, development sort of lending or governing agencies, part of what we also see is kind of that there was an unsuccessful effort to decolonize at the founding of the country, right? I recently spoke to three social studies teachers 
all of whom are dedicated to bringing discussions around race, racism, resistance, and decolonization into their classrooms. We'll hear from Julian Kenneth Braxton, a history teacher and the director of community and inclusion at the Windsor School in Boston, Massachusetts. Linda Morse, a social studies teacher at Foxborough Regional Charter School. And Malcolm Cawthorn, a social studies teacher and METCO coordinator at Brookline High School. They'll share with us their thoughts on both the teaching of decolonization in Africa, but also, relatedly and importantly, how they go about teaching race and racism, which itself is not limited to the context of this particular history. Let's start with Julian and hear a bit about how he teaches the history of decolonization in Africa. I think the primary focus in decolonization is the liberation narrative. I think that liberation narrative is critical to understanding the continent, and I think it really centers the continent in a different way, in a way that I think, you know, it it avoids that victim narrative. It is a liberation story. It's a story of independence. It's a story of pride. It's a story of Pan-Africanism. So one of the things that students do in my class, they follow a country throughout the entire semester. And one of the things, as before they follow the country, they have some historical context on the country that they are following so they understand how decolonization took place in their particular country. But what I do for the entire class is I'm creating a portrait of some of the general themes about decolonization. And one thing that I do early on is I actually have them just do a simple activity of of finding out when their country became independent. And so they, you know, most of them around the early 1960. And one of the things that I say, well, how long ago was that? And it's, oh, 60 years ago. So let's do a little math here. When the United States become independent, 1776. And they add the 60 to that. And I'm like, if you look at it in terms of the date of independence, in terms of U.S. history, we haven't even gone through the Civil War yet. So when you talk about these being very new nations, they really are. And so some of the challenges that we talk about in these nations are understandable. Now let's hear from Linda and learn about how she teaches the history of decolonization and resistance in Africa. When I teach a course on Africa, I do focus a lot on resistance movements so that by the time you get to decolonization, students already understand that this has been a continual movement to throw off European powers. You have also an opportunity, I think, to demonstrate with decolonization that human beings are all the same and that people are always going to be pushing and fighting for however they define freedom. It's just so important to give everybody agency. It's very important that they get rid of the notion Well, the Europeans came in, they took over, and that was the end of it. The way that Africa is taught or pretty much left out 
is really trying to sideline people on the African continent and say that they are other, that they are not like the rest of the people in the world, when of course they are. It's really important that students understand that Europeans or Americans or any colonizer coming in are completely disrupting a structure that was probably functioning for hundreds of years and was completely effective for the people that were living there. When people took over as much as they could the African continent, it was really as if they just erased any kind of history. So in the decolonization process, the people on the continent are reclaiming their history, making new history. Like we heard with Professor Ralph, violence is part of the story of decolonization. So let's listen to Julian as he shares a bit about how he goes about introducing this particular aspect of decolonization. I think the use of arms and liberation goes to a larger narrative of the use of arms in resistance in general. So I think that's where it's important to give some contextualization to how people who have struggled under uh, an oppressive force, how they have resisted. You know, we tend to think of it all being, you know, this peaceful, we shall overcome narrative. But armed resistance in terms of world history has been the narrative. The study of race and racism and the struggles to bring about an anti-racist society are not limited to the history of decolonization in Africa. So now let's continue to focus on the topic of race and think about its broader relevance in what we teach our students and how we engage them in deep, challenging, and provocative opportunities to think critically in our classrooms. This definition is from the poet Laurie Sang, and it says, race is the myth upon which the reality of racism is based. Like water, race takes on the shape of whatever contains it, whatever culture, social structure, but like water, it slips through your fingers when you try to hold it. Race, in many ways, is important to discuss because racism is still a factor in our society. So to say that you're colorblind, you're not acknowledging the reality of racism in our society. We often say in the classroom that we want to bring our total selves. And in bringing our total selves, we're also bringing our feelings about these issues. And I realized a long time ago, some of the best classes that I've had really happen when people are honest and bring their questions that may be uncomfortable at times. And I think that is a way for progress. People are asking for it. I think people, we've been doing this before, but I felt like we've been doing it because we knew it was the right thing. Now we're doing it because our students are demanding that we make sure that we're not reading the same old text. Let's hear from Malcolm as he describes what motivates him to bring the study of race and racism into his own teaching in deep and expansive ways. And one of the things I kept coming through is realizing how much kids actually wanted to talk about race. Like they wanted to have a forum that was somewhat safe with, with, a, with a teacher, and instructor to help them talk about race and to learn about race, but really to actually have the conversations. My feeling was that 
yeah, we don't do this in school. And we know the kids are going to talk about it. Who knows where they end up? How do we actually go about talking to students about race? I think the key thing in helping students understand and define race is actually having them as a very first activity to begin to define it on their own, for them to think about what role race has played in their life, to think about how race has, in their own study of history, how race has come up, and then using those definitions, have them sort of talk to each other about it. It is my responsibility to make sure that I create a classroom environment where people feel that they can ask these questions and be really very honest about some of these issues. Make sure that we create the conditions in which students are able to bring their full selves to the conversation. And part of that is thinking about what kind of classroom principles that we want to create that allow for students to be able to take risks, to be able to listen to each other, to be able to speak from the eye perspective, point of view, to be able to practice both and thinking. I think naming those community principles, teachers all have those principles in mind, but also allow students to think about what do you need in this classroom in order to be able to have honest, thoughtful, brave conversation. I think it's always really important that kids at least begin to think about where they are themselves racially before they try to look at someone else. I talked with another teacher friend who I very strategically picked. I thought it would be really cool if we co-taught it, being different genders, different sexual identities, different races, and to stand in front of kids and teach. So it would be this model of racial conversation and things like that. Not every teacher feels comfortable broaching the topics of race and racism, whether it's in the context of studying decolonization in Africa or when examining U.S. history. Why may this discomfort exist? How can it be surmounted? The reflections allowed for the emotion, because racism can be quite emotional. I think sometimes, as a Black man, people assume I know how to do this, which is why, like, I go back, like, you know, I had to read, I had to do all the stuff, I, did, I had to take risks. I think that... Some educators are reluctant to really engage in these conversations about race and racism because of the vulnerability that they may face. There's a vulnerability in the conversation, I should say. And that vulnerability is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be in a space where you might be judged or you might say the wrong thing. And having conversations about race and racism, I just have to say, there are tools to have these conversations but there's no toolkit to have the perfect conversation. And I think so many of us want to have the perfect conversation. And if you want to have the perfect conversation, then I think you're probably in the wrong profession. What sorts of outcomes can arise when we deliberately introduce these conversations to our students? What can it mean for their attitudes and how they go about the process of navigating the social worlds that they themselves inhabit? And one of the things they said was they were just able to identify things in a way that they knew most of their peers couldn't because they hadn't been taught the vocabulary. But more importantly, they were able to be aware of, of race, and particularly in the United States, and how, how races have been defined and identified. For a lot of kids, just understanding that, that race could be changing 
gave them this real sense of sort of calm as they were learning that like they could understand race within a context of whatever they were learning at that time and not sort of see it as finite. As we saw with decolonization in Africa, race, racism, and anti-racist struggles are deeply embedded in history. And we can tell stories of Africa and importantly, the African diaspora in ways that center these struggles, these aspirations, and the agency of those who demonstrate the will to resist and change society. For all of our students, these stories can inspire their own actions in the world as they consider what identity means to them and as they think about injustice and their role in confronting it. That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and other resources in further depth, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Study Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu/africa. And to learn more about the center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu/africa/outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks for listening.